Good. Okay. Uh, well, spring uh, has come, and uh, before you know it, Memorial Day will be here. Uh, Memorial Day is, of course, an American holiday observed um, on the last Monday of May, I believe. Uh, it was established, of course, to honor the men and women who have died while serving us, uh, serving the uh, U.S. military. So many Americans observe Memorial Day by visiting cemeteries and memorials, holding family gatherings, and participating in parades. Will they be doing that this year, I wonder? And I don't mean because of the whole virus and the pandemic situation. I just mean, would they and will they? That's the way we used to celebrate. But I think, sadly, that the day is... The, the day, that particular day has been claimed, of course, by the masses, along with so many other holidays, as, I don't know, a personal day, right? It's a personal day. Many younger generation Americans have no idea of its real meaning, and they think it's, well, the official start of summer. That's Memorial Day. More still, a, a time off from work, I suppose, a personal day to relax. So people from other countries observing most Americans during this time would never get the impression, of course, that we are honoring the, uh, fallen veterans. It is a sad thing when the means by which we commemorate a historic event loses its significance and then becomes something of a reality itself, even more significant than what it commemorates. Now, this is true even in the Bible. Take the Sabbath, for example. The Sabbath was for God's people to celebrate the time when God rested on the seventh day of his creation to celebrate his own creation. Yet by the time of the New Testament, the religious leaders had so skewed the Sabbath by their legalistic thinking that, well, it was no longer a delight for them, or for God's people, rather, to, to celebrate but rather it was a harsh and overbearing time for them to, to do little else than breathe, really. The leaders had abused the means and missed the meaning of the event, the initial event back in Genesis. Jesus would expose this, of course, and expose them by saying the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Well, the great thing about biblical means of commemoration, like the Sabbath, and all the festivals of the nation, is that they not only celebrated a historical event, but they also prefigure a real event in the future that hasn't taken place yet. Take the Passover. God established the Passover back in Exodus chapter 12, and and, and, and as a memorial for the time when he killed all the firstborn in Egypt, but passed over the Hebrew households that had blood of the lamb on their door. Remember that? Down through the, uh, the, the generations of Israelites, Hebrew families would celebrate this by this means, this means of Passover. But many of them missed the meaning of the future fulfillment of the Passover, which was... Jesus himself, the lamb that took away the sins of the world. God's judgment passes over us because the, the blood of the lamb is upon us. 
The religious leaders of, this, of his day missed this entirely, and, and we know that so many Jews today will also miss this when they celebrate the Passover in just a couple of weeks from now. It's a sad thing when the means meant to celebrate a real and important event in the future loses its significance and becomes something of a reality itself, even more significant than what it is supposed to celebrate. The abuse of the means by which God ordained to prefigure the future is something that those in the congregation receiving the letter to the Hebrews were guilty of doing. And I want to show you that right now. We are in chapter 9, and uh, we're looking at only verses 1 to 10. What I'd like to do is consider just the first first, uh, 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 first seven verses with you, um, and, and then we'll focus our attention on verses 8 to 10. But just the first seven verses. The first seven verses really tell us, the, the idea here is that the tabernacle of Israel, from its structure to its practice, epitomized its worship. That's really all it is meant to do, is tell us that the tabernacle epitomized the worship of Israel. You'll see the significance of this in, in just a moment, but let me flesh this out for you um, in verses 2 to 5. We read there, for, the, for a tabernacle was equipped, the outer sanctuary in which were the lampstand, the table, the, sa- uh, the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a, taberna- uh, a tabernacle sorry, behind the veil there was a tabernacle which is called the most holy place, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which a gold jar holding the manna, Aaron's staff which budded, and the tablets of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the atoning cover. Verses 2 to 5. We're going to stop at the first half of verse 5 there. What we see here, as I say, is the epitome of Israel's worship. It had regulations. That's kind of funny because if you were to describe a church today as being a place that had regulations, probably not many people would attend. Um, But these regulations were actually from God. And what we have laid out for us uh, in this very brief description is meant to show us that the very essence of Old Testament worship is the tabernacle. Here it is, with its structure, with its furnishings, and with its priesthood. The tabernacle was divided into two sections according to this passage, the holy place and the holy of holies. The holy place was the domain of the priests. They spent the majority of their time there. The holy of holies, on the other hand, was never occupied except once a year on the Day of Atonement, and that by the high priest himself. Each compartment, the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place, had its own furnishings. The Holy Place had a lampstand, a table, and and some sacred bread on the table. Now, I I just need to take a a few moments to to lay out some of this for you because uh, we're not used to, to the tabernacle and its structure and its furnishings. There are a lot more furnishings than what the writer has listed for us here, but these he listed as I'll show you in a moment, for a reason, just giving us a a brief overview. The lampstand was a solid gold shaft with 
with uh, three branches on each side, so six altogether. And it was the only source of light in the holy place, the only source of light. It lit the way to the other articles of furniture, of course, but it also lit the way to the Holy of Holies when, on, the, on one day of the year, the high priest would enter. This light was to never go out so that the priest had to maintain it with olive oil and trim the lamps. You might be wondering, what is its significance? Well, the light, or light, is symbolic, of course, for the way to God in this particular context. But it's also true of light throughout the whole Bible. There is a motif or a theme of light. It stands for truth. It stands for the way to God. You might remember Zechariah shows in his... um, in his prophecy, that the provision for the light was the Holy Spirit. Uh, So the oil in this lamp symbolized the Holy Spirit who kept the light going, and the work that was carried out in this place then was not by man's might, but by the work of the Holy Spirit. That was the idea. So that's the significance of the lampstand. The table, the table of showbread, uh, more specifically, was a, a wood table with gold overlay. On it were two rows of six loaves, each representing the twelve tribes of Israel. What did the bread signify? Well, bread signified fellowship, communion with God, on the basis of the sacrifice that was made previously outside the tent on the altar. You need to know, and maybe you do, that food and table form a common motif in scripture as well, and that's for fellowship. Anytime there was a sharing of a table, there was fellowship. And when it was done with a king or a priest, to eat with them showed that they had extended their grace to you. God, of course, being the ultimate king, showing his grace. Frankincense was poured over the bread in order to signify a sweet savor. Because the fellowship that God had with his people was sweet. The veil. Well, the veil was this heavy woven material, woven together so tightly that it was reported that two yoke of oxen could not pull it apart. That's how thick it was. It it had a cherubim, it had cherubim rather, embroidered on it, symbolically representing their presence as guarding the way to the source of life, which was the Holy of Holies. Just as the cherubim had done previously back in the garden, if you remember, where they guarded the tree of life. The veil separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies, and it represented complete and utter separation from God. That's what the veil represented. There was no way that you could get to God because the veil was in the way. The second compartment then, that other place that the veil prevented us from going or prevented them from going into was the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God dwelt. There you would find the Ark of the Covenant. was also the, called the footstool of God's throne. It was a wooden rectangular chest with gold overlay both inside and out. In it lay the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. That's why it is called the Ark of the Covenant. It had the manna which stood for God's provision, and the rod of Aaron's budded staff. The top of the ark, the lid, known as the place of propitiation or the mercy seat, was a solid piece of gold, if you can believe it. On each end of this lid were statues of cherubim, the guardian angels. God's glory, the Shekinah glory, 
would hover above the mercy seat between the angels, God's presence. The last piece of furniture that the writer mentions here is the altar of incense. This was a a short wooden table with gold overlay. It was placed where the priest intercepted it was, its place, rather, was for priests' intercession on behalf of worshipers. The, the incense on the table would burn, and as the smoke would rise up into the air, it symbolized the prayers or the in, the, of intercession of the priests rising to the ear of God. The table had four horns on it, one on each corner, that signified the strength and efficacy of their intercession. The writer lists this piece as part of the Holy of Holies, but technically, technically it was positioned just outside the veil in the holy place, right next to the veil. So why does the writer associate the altar with the Holy of Holies? Because he has in mind the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, the altar of incense played a very special role in conjunction with the Ark of the Covenant. That's the reason. Now, there are more furnishings of the tabernacle than we read here, as I say, but the writer gives just this cursory comment. And he even says in verse 5, about these things, we cannot speak in detail. So his point is not to go into detail about the tabernacle. It's not necessary. What's necessary is to give the layout and these few important pieces of furniture. Now, on to the practice, real quick. On to the practice. We looked at the earthly sanctuary. Now we look at the earthly practice of the worship in the sanctuary. He moves from the physical description then of the sanctuary to the physical practice of the priest in verses 6 to 7. Let me read that for you. Now when these things have been so prepared, that is in the in the tabernacle, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship, But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. As we mentioned already, the priests spend the majority of their time performing various kinds of sacrifices and offerings uh, uh, of the the tabernacle on behalf of the people in the outer compartment of the tabernacle, the holy place. While only the high priest enters the Holy of Holies once a year in the Day of Atonement. We've already established that. The writer is really referring to this. It was a dangerous job, you see, for the high priest to do that. He had to enter with blood of the sacrifice sprinkled on the mercy seat, both for his own sins and for the sins of the nation that they committed in ignorance. Now, there's a great deal more that we could say about both the tabernacle and the various duties of the priest at the sanctuary, but... The writer gives a cursory uh, description for two reasons, and we're going to end it here. One is that most of the Jewish Christians to whom he was writing knew full well what was going on. They, They were very familiar with the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant. There was no need to really rehearse all of the little details. The other reason, and more to the point, is that the details of the intricacies of the tabernacle communicate to us the essence of Israel's worship at that time. It was restricted to places, rooms, props. That was the essence, that was the epitome of their worship under the Old Covenant. It was restricted. Restricted to places, rooms, 
and props. Now that leads us to the second truth, and that's this. There is a divinely built-in obsolescence to the earthly sanctuary that anticipated a better system. Let me say that again. There, there is a divinely built-in obsolescence to the earthly sanctuary. A sanctuary that anticipated a better system to come. In other words, this whole system, the sacrificial system, the tabernacle, it had a shelf life. It was meant to become obsolete at some point. The writer's overall point comes uh, to us in verses 8 to 10. It, it, it's really the key to this whole section and even the rest of the chapter. Let me read it for you. The Holy Spirit is, is signifying this. And by the way, let me just pause and say, notice that the writer is telling us that the Holy Spirit is speaking. In other words, he speaks to us in Scripture. And that's his point. We go back and we look at the Old Testament. We read what the Holy Spirit has said to us. And this is what the Holy Spirit signifies by all of this. That the way into the holy place had not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is sta still standing which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, <clears throat> imposed until a time of restoration. Now, we need to unpack that, of course, and uh, I'm just going to do it verse by verse. What I'm about to give you, really, and I could put it in, in these words, are the characteristics of the tabernacle, the characteristics of Old Testament worship. This epitome of worship that's, that's um, portrayed for us with the tabernacle and the practices of the priest, there are certain characteristics of it. And they help us to understand these characteristics, that there is a divinely built-in obsolescence to it, and that it anticipates something better. So let me, let me unpack it for you, and, and here's the first characteristic that I'll give you. It's coming out of verse 8. The sacrificial system of the Old Covenant offered genuine believers, at best, limited access to God. It offered, at best, a limited access to God. According to verse 8, the way into the holy place, or the holy of holies, rather, had not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. What does that mean? Well, simply this, that the way to God for every individual Old Testament believer had not yet uh, appeared or been made known to them. In other words, there, there was no way of knowing how to get through the veil into the presence of God hadn't been disclosed. There was no way. It was prevented. And you can see that the physical layout of the tabernacle that we went over obscures anyone's approach to God, right? You don't need a detailed description of the tabernacle to see that. The entire structure was not conducive to unrestricted, personal, individual worship. The kind that you enjoy through the week in your prayer closet or when you're driving in your car and you're, you're talking to the Lord. And when you want to worship him, this kind of free and unrestricted worship was not part of, Israel, of, of Israel's tabernacle worship, the earthly 
sanctuary. And the heavy, the heavy veil that stretched from the top of the tent floor cover, uh, to, to the very bottom covering the entrance, entrance of the Holy of Holies really is a dead giveaway. It allowed no one before the presence of God except the high priest and only, only he on one day of the year. What this, <clears throat> what this means in practical terms is that free, direct, and constant access to God was unavailable to every individual, individual worshiper in Israel as long as this sacrificial system was in place. That's what it means. There was access to God through the priest. Don't misunderstand. There was, but it was limited. And direct access to God through the high priest was even more limited. The sacrificial system of the Old Covenant offered genuine believers, at best, limited access to God. That's the first characteristic. Here's the second one. It comes from verse 9. The sacrificial system of the Old Covenant anticipated a better way to worship in Messiah. It anticipated a better way to worship in Messiah. The second half of verse 9 tells us that the tabernacle was a symbol for the present time. The word symbol in the New American Standard Bible might be different in yours, translates a Greek word that you are well familiar with, and that is the word parable. It's really what it is, a parable. A parable, as you know, is a figure of speech that uses comparison. Jesus spoke in parables all the time in order to teach spiritual truth to his disciples. The kingdom of heaven is like, this is a parable, an extended metaphor for you grammarians out there. The writer of Hebrews tells us here that the tabernacle, with its whole sacrificial system, was God's way of teaching those Old Testament saints that it served about something better. The New Covenant, a New Covenant era, era, which really was the present time for the writer of the Hebrews and his audience. God designed the sacrificial system to educate the Old Testament saints about a time when true believers would enjoy individual and unrestricted access to God. The tabernacle with its two compartments that prevented individual believers from approaching God personally and directly well, that would eventually give way to a greater system under the New Covenant. This is why the New Testament often explains the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in terms of shadow and reality. Shadow and reality. When some false teachers visited Colossae, they tried to impose on the believers there in, uh, at Colossae dietary laws and the festivals and keeping various holy days from the Old Covenant, all of which Paul said in Colossians 2.17 that these were only shadows of what eventually came in the substance or reality of Christ. Picture, if you will, the reality of the cross of Jesus. In your mind, picture the cross of Jesus, a real object, and picture God's glory on one side shining against it, exposing it to the world. Okay? On the other side of the cross would be its shadow. 
And that shadow is cast back, back as far as the Old Testament times. And this is what the writer is getting at in chapter 10, verse 1, when he speaks of the ceremonial law as only a shadow of the good things to come and not the actual form of those things itself. It was a, it was a, a shadow of the reality. So figuratively speaking, the shadow of the cross, which is cast back on the Old Testament, is really the Old Testament covenant. Uh, with all its prescribed rituals, with all its ceremonies, with all its sacrifices, that anticipated the reality. Old Testament saints lived in the shadow of the cross, really, not in the reality of the cross. And their worship then anticipated this reality, a time when the way to God would allow individuals constant and unrestricted access to God through Messiah. You might be wondering at this point, how could a system that prevented individuals uh, from constant and unrestricted access to God actually teach it? And the answer is by anticipating it. The labored, meticulous, mechanical, and limited way that the worshipers commune with God in this system taught them to anticipate something better. Let me get to the third characteristic then. The sacrificial system of the Old Covenant could not make the worshiper mature in conscience. He couldn't make the worshiper mature in conscience. In what way is worship in the, in the New Covenant superior to worship um, of the Old Covenant? That is, by means of sacrificial system in the Old Covenant. What makes it superior? Well, there are many ways actually, and we'll learn of all of them before our time in Hebrews is over. But for now, the writer focuses our attention in this section on one of those superior ways in, in the rest of verse 9 and in the first part of verse 10. He says, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they're related only to food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body. Now, what is the writer saying here? Well, let's understand first what it means, what he means by perfect in conscience. I think we understand conscience well enough. It is the awareness of ourselves by which we make moral judgments, right, relating to right and wrong. When we make a morally right judgment, our conscience is clear. When we make a morally wrong judgment or we sin, our conscience indicts us and causes us guilt. Guilt is always real. It is the result, of course, of offending a holy God. It is no less than sin. To get rid of guilt, the Bible tells us that we simply need to confess it to God and repent, asking him for forgiveness. Quite different from the way the world tries to rid guilt in people's lives. Okay, so far so good. So how do we understand perfect in conscience? which is what the writer of the Hebrews tells us the old, sac old sacrificial system could not accommodate. Since or because, reasons the writer in verse 10, these gifts and sacrifices relate only to food and drink and various washings and regulations of the body. The Greek word perfect in verse 10 does not mean flawless or inerrant or without defect as we're so used to thinking. It can mean that. 
but it doesn't in this context. In fact, the New Testament often uses the word perfect with the idea of bringing something to completion or maturity. And our context is one of those instances. The writer means a mature conscience. He's not talking about a a time where we can actually get to where our conscience is perfect and that it's flawless. No, he means complete or mature. What, what, What Christ does for true believers in the new covenant that the old sacrificial system couldn't do is to make the worshiper mature in his conscience. Now, what is a mature conscience, anyway? Well, it's one that's really better informed, founded on more revelation, on better promises. The Old Testament saints operated by revelation, of course, that was limited compared to the full revelation that the New Covenant believers have today. As we said, their access to God was limited, right? They didn't have unrestricted and direct access to God as we do today. Their expressions of worship and contrition and prayers, they were limited by by means of external rituals and ceremonies, offerings and sacrifices, ceremonial washings. So the only way an Old Testament believer could obtain a clear conscience in this system was by continually practicing this exter- these external rites, none of which, I might add, are necessary anymore under the New Covenant. Now, I'm not saying that these outward acts of worship didn't need to come from faith. Don't misunderstand. They did. They came from a heart devoted to God. They had to if they would mean anything. God does not accept empty ritual or empty works in any era. Now, what I'm saying is that even the, even the means of worship by faithful Old Testament saints were still limited, specifically because they were external and anticipatory. They weren't internal and reality, as you find in the New Covenant. In verse 10, the writer explains that the information about cleansing that Old Testament believers had was limited by the system. It was limited by the system because it used means for for the believer to express his or her faith and concepts of forgiveness and spiritual renewal and cleansing and the holiness of God and what it means to be accepted before him and and gospel truths that would come later. It, It was a means for them to express all of this. For example, the Old Testament saints believed that someday Messiah would come and shed his blood for them. That God had forgiven them in advance on the basis of the future death that Messiah would die. And that their salvation rested in the future work of Messiah alone. But since that hadn't happened yet, in reality, Messiah's work was was reality was wasn't reality for them yet the best the system could do was establish its external means of worship that would allow the believer to carry on in light of the coming reality the sacrifices the shedding of the animal blood the intercession of the priest the altar for god's judgment in fire it was all external acts of worship that were meaningful only as they prefigured Messiah and his work. 
If you were to ask the Old Testament saint back then why he must sacrifice an animal, this is what he would have said. He would have said, well, because someday Messiah will shed his blood to pay for my sin and earn God's forgiveness for me. If you asked the Old Testament <clears throat> saint back then, why do you have to go to the priest and go through the priest? He would have answered this, because someday Messiah will act as my mediator and high priest. You see, Old Testament saints under the Old Covenant and sacrificial system demonstrated spiritual truths by these outward means of worship. The symbols, the means, however, could not accomplish spiritual ends. They only pictured the future work of Messiah. They allowed Old Testament believers to have fellowship with God, yes, and commune with him without question, and maintain their sanctification, absolutely. And all of that to a meaningful degree, but not to the full and mature degree that these believers could have if they ever lived long enough to make it into the New Covenant. They couldn't because their means of expressing the future reality of Messiah and his work were only external. And that's why these means ended when the New Covenant began. The sacrifices, the priests, the fellowship offerings, the washings, the dietary laws that, the one, that one had to perform in order to be acceptable in God's sight, they were all fulfilled by Messiah and his work. They are no longer needed. That's the idea. That's the point. They've outlived their usefulness. They're obsolete. Now, believers under the New Covenant um, have fuller fellowship with God. They have fuller assurance of forgiveness of sins. They have a greater sanctified lifestyle. Why? Because Messiah's Spirit is now in them permanently. That's internal. What we enjoy by means of the internal working of the Spirit, the Old Testament believers could only hope to. What the Spirit does for us now, the Old Testament saints could only symbolize by their external rites and ceremonies. We also then enjoy a stronger confidence of God's forgiveness of our sins. Why? Because, because of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice, which already happened. That's reality. And his ongoing advocacy for us in heaven. John says that we have an advocate with the Father, right, who continually pleads our case. His ministry to us is an, an internal reality. It is not an external hope that you find in the Old Covenant. Again, the best that the Old, Old Testament saints had for the assurance of forgiveness and a clear conscience was the ongoing sacrifices of various kinds that also reminded them of their sins every year. That was external. Now, before we leave this section and make the last characteristic, I think it's important that you be aware that many commentaries, in fact, most that I have read for uh, the book of Hebrews, at this point, have mistakenly argued that the Old Testament believers were unable to obtain a clear conscience or be freed from a guilty conscience. And that view is quite incorrect and, frankly, absolutely ridiculous. I'm embarrassed, in fact, for those who say this, and these are well-known 
Bible teachers and commentators. The, the, the very fact that the priest ate part of the worshiper's offering and that the rest of it was being burned up on the altar was the system's built-in signs to the worshiper that God had accepted their offering, their sacrifice, that he had forgiven them, and that they could be assured of that. In addition, the priest was also responsible to confirm to the worshiper that God granted forgiveness. Knowing this, the worshiper would go home with a clear conscience and a spirit of praise, knowing that his sin was removed. Every faithful and genuine Old Testament believer had this assurance and could leave from the sanctuary, uh, from the uh, sacrificing with this clear conscience and full assur- uh, and, um, assurance that God had forgiven him. So it's not that the Old Testament believers couldn't have a clear conscience or be assured of forgiveness. They could, and they were. Did David, who murdered and committed adultery, two capital offenses, by the way, that warranted the death penalty in Israel, could he find relief from his guilty conscience? What do you think? Of course he could. Yes, indeed. Psalm 51, verse 7, David is convinced, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. And we know that God accepted because Nathan told him that God forgave him. You will not die, Nathan says. God has forgiven you. We need to get into the habit, I think, of of seeing the relationship of the Old Covenant and the, to the New Covenant in terms not of bad and good, but rather of good and better. That's how we have to understand it, good and better. So much of what we enjoy as New Covenant believers, the Old Covenant believers also enjoyed, just not to the same degree. And again, that's because what they enjoyed, as good as it was, amounted to the shadow of the ideal yet to come. We live in the ideal. They lived in the shadows. Well, fourth and final characteristic of the sacrificial system under the Old Covenant is this, that it it imposed external regulations on God's people until the time when Messiah would bring restoration. It actually imposed it imposed external regulations on God's people until a time when Messiah would come and bring restoration. We find this last characteristic in the very last few words of verse 10, until a time of restoration. The New American Standard Bible has reformation. The Greek word behind this translation speaks really of a process of setting things straight, setting them right, of of perfecting things. It really speaks of a new order. So I've chosen to translate it restoration. Both are fine. Surely we are meant to understand by this word an improvement upon the old order of things. And if we plug that idea back into the verse, the writer has in mind what we might call a new order of things. A new order. The old order was a mere copy, if you remember, of a heavenly sanctuary, and as such it stressed the earthly element of the old covenant worship, the earthly element that's not present in the new covenant. By that, I don't mean to suggest that there wasn't a spiritual element to Old Testament Israel's worship. Absolutely not. There was. We 
We said Old Testament saints worship God from a contrite, redeemed, circumcised heart, right? We've been saying that for weeks. Rather, it simply means that the Old Covenant used, again, material substances to express spiritual worship. Literal sacrifices, literal blood, ascending smoke, kneeling, laying on of hands, prostrating, eating, holy water, and ceremonial washings. All external earthly things. These external and material means didn't rule out a spiritual experience, of course. They became the channels through which the Old Testament saints would express their spiritual worship. But once again, these means were limiting. You need to understand that material substances cannot give the fullest expression to the spiritual. Now, this fact, I think, is made quite clearly in Jesus' confrontation with the woman at the well about when he made uh, some comments about her private life. She changes the subject to worship, and this is what she said to him. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, John 4. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and yet you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one must worship. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, that a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. But a time is coming and even now has arrived when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, the time, this time that Jesus refers to that's closely upon her, and all of Jerusalem, was the inauguration of the new covenant. The new covenant life and worship would take on a new expression. There would no longer be a need for physical sacrifices on an altar by a priest on behalf of a believer. No, no more blood and no more smoke or incense or any furniture of, of the temple. In fact, there would no longer be any need for a temple. Of course, all that would be unthinkable to any first century Jew who had grown up under the Old Covenant and with the commands to practice the ceremonial law. Who'd ever think, who'd ever think among the first century Jews that there would ever come a time when they could worship the Lord in a superior fashion without the temple and its priesthood and its sacrificial system? Think about that. They would have thought this was blasphemous. But there did come such a time. And it's only the pure propaganda from a disgruntled and offended, offended Jewish priesthood that would tell those in the congregation receiving this letter to the Hebrews, go ahead, go ahead, forsake the Mosaic Law and the Covenant and see where that gets you. But we all know that God intended for the Old Covenant to be a stepping stone in, in, a, structure, in a structure of, of, uh, of the Old Covenant to usher in the New Covenant, the capstone of it all. And we don't want to go back to one of the stepping stones and call it the capstone, do we? That's exactly what they were doing. To us 21st century believers... The physical restrictions of an old covenant seem, well, outlandish. The 
believer's body is the temple of the Spirit, right? As well as the collective body of believers. We, the believers, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Christ made a once-for-all sacrifice, eliminating the sacrificial system. And we may add, eliminating the priesthood. Since under this new covenant, all believers are priests. The priesthood of all believers. I have to scratch my head then when I see so many church folk arguing, seemingly hateful at times, to the point where they even separate over things like buildings and church furniture, which are no longer required for spiritual worship, right? Cushions. What color will they be? If they're not warring over which musical instrument should be used, the, the color of the accents inside the auditorium, the carpeting, the drapery. And then they are enamored with property, stained glass windows, or whether the building is configured to look contemporary enough, or is it outfitted with the latest technology, all that stuff. It's not necessary, because it's not what makes for spiritual worship. Remember that. What can we learn from the Old Testament saints that lived in the shadow of the reality that is ours now? What can we learn? I'm going to close with this. If we can learn, or if we can worship, rather, and imitate God and pray better than the champions of righteousness of old, what can we possibly learn from them? And that's a good question. Paul himself actually said that the Old Testament was written for our benefit and our instruction. So what can we learn from the Old Testament? Well, we can learn a lot from them, and more than just what not to do. We need only look at Hebrews 11, where the writer look, uh, thought, uh, thought as much and listed all those examples of what it means to live by faith. And I cannot wait to get to that chapter. But I'm thinking more about their lifestyle than about their doctrine. Their lifestyle. By that I mean this. The Old Testament saints lived in anticipation of Messiah's coming, right? They lived in anticipation of of Jesus Christ. They didn't know who it would be. They lived in, in anticipation of Messiah's coming. Most of them died before they ever saw Messiah. But they lived out the same concepts of redemption as we now know and we cherish, only under an inferior covenant. Surely what they were limited by, they, they were limited by their, their covenant to experience, what they were limited in, we experience to the fullest degree. We've already made that point. And they would have as well, had they lived long enough to make it beyond Pentecost, they, they would have experienced uh, a fuller degree of all that they had known under the Old Covenant. A, the, to the fullest degree, actually. So what I'm getting at is this, that they lived in anticipation of a better time of a reality and a substance that they, that they could experience only to a limited degree. Nevertheless, they were faithful, these champions of faith under the Old Covenant. And they become our models of what it means to live by faith. How so? Think about that. Champions of faith under an obsolete covenant become our models, or become models to us, we who live in a better covenant as to how we are to live by faith in the promises of God. Well, we live under the best covenant there is. There's no more that God will make with man. This is it. The new covenant is it.
And we might argue that the New Covenant living is the best kind of living there is on earth. On earth. And what kind of living is that? It's living out a redeemed life, listen, in anticipation of a greater life to come in heaven. Heavenly living will be perfection in the sense of flawless. And the epistles are quite clear that we are to strive to live that way now. On the one hand, life for the Christian doesn't get any better than New Covenant living on earth. But it will be better in heaven, right? Just as the Old Testament saints lived with the knowledge that they had at the time under the Old Covenant in light of Messiah's first coming, so we need to live with the fullest knowledge that God will ever give in the New Covenant in light of Messiah's second coming. And this is what we can learn from our Old Testament saints we can learn how to live in anticipation of Messiah's coming, where we will be with him forever in perfect light. If that's something that you can say amen to, then let me leave you with this thought. Just as the Old Testament believers used the sacrificial system, and indeed the entire Old Covenant, as really God's ultimate means of celebrating in in anticipation or in an anticipatory way a better covenant and life we new covenant believers might understand our new life in Christ as somewhat of a means to a greater end as well our lives should be a celebration not only of what Christ has done but what he will do at his second coming, where you will experience life to the fullest. Therefore, don't let the means lose its meaning and become more important than the future reality of heaven. So many Christians embrace this earthly life as the unbelieving religious leaders of Jesus' day embraced the earthly temple. So many Christians live for the here and now. If you live and if your life celebrates what is to come, then you'll prove that true by the way you live it, putting no stock in earthly things and investing rather in the kingdom. Father, we thank